0: Mind Body Connection podcast. The body
1: and mind, mind.
0: With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Today, really fantastic to have a very old friend of mine, David, Dr. David Hamilton, uh, here. Thanks, David, for joining. Most
1: welcome, Phil. Great to be here.
0: So I know you're just back from Spain and you're getting your head together. So I'll just remind you of who you are, seeing as you've been on holiday. So David is uh, started off as a PhD in organic chemistry. Um, But in that process, he got really interested in the placebo effect and then started a new career as a kind of expert author on how the body and mind interact. Uh, He's written 10 books, uh, some amazing bestsellers, including The Five Side Effects of Kindness. And uh, he's also featured in a recent documentary, Heal, on Netflix. Anything else you'd like to add to that?
1: No, I think you've pretty much nailed it there, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) It's always weird even hearing my bio, you know, hear people uh, describe me, you know, because I I, I just... I'm always pretty low-maintenance, really. And I, I go on stage. I'm not really that bothered about, you know, that there's a Scottish guy here usually is good enough for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's nice to give it a context because as I said uh, before we started rolling today and there's some amazing people on this podcast who volunteer their time and you're one of them, you know, someone who's been doing this for a long time and the kind of basic premise of the the podcast is to to look at the whole of the mind-body connection. And I was asked this question recently that kind of got me thinking on social media where somebody said, it's all a bunch of nonsense it's not right, it's not true, it never makes any difference to anybody, it's all a scam, anybody who thinks that the mind-body connection really has any effect is just you know, whistling in the wind, and I was like, that's, that's fascinating to hear that conversation, because your experience, my experience, uh, and the research that we've read, and some of the research we've done, clearly doesn't say any of that, and yet, uh, for many people, the mind-body connection is a bit weird and a bit strange for, for you and me because we've worked in it for such a long time. It's like, well, of course, it's, it's it's part of the podcast is uh, just kind of um, setting some clarity about about this whole field. And I thought it'd be great to have you on because of your your deep experience and writing and research in the area. So I'm going to start with a really simple question, which is, so the podcast is the Mind-Body Connection podcast. How would you define or describe the mind-body connection? How would you put it in your words?
1: For me, it's the two-way interaction between the mind and the body. So in other words, how you think and feel and what you believe has a physical effect on the body, but in this, by the same token, the condition of the body or how you move and maneuver the body has a physical effect or has an effect on how you feel and how, how you think. So it's a kind of, a kind of two-way street. Can I, I just jump back a minute, actually, a, a comical example. Yeah. I, I tend not to get very often people being generally sceptical of the mind-body connection, but a couple of times I did a few years ago, a, a, just an, an idea came into my mind. It was, a, it was a guy just saying, oh, the mind-body connection, there's no such thing as a mind-body connection. And, I, and my answer to that was, uh, have you ever had a sexual fantasy in your mind, <laughs> did something not physical happen to your body? <laughs> there's the mind body connection. If ever you doubted, it's something <laughs> in your head and your mind, but it's having a physical, obvious physical effect on <laughs> your body. And the, the, con- the eyes can, uh, when, and there was no comeback, there's no answer to that because that's a very clear demonstration of the mind body connection. So, Excellent, uh, very uh, good. I, um... I, I, I use that occasionally just as a little example.
0: I've, I've just done a, an episode right at the beginning of the podcast introducing it, and I use a much uh, more sanitised version, which is blushing, <laughs> which is the same thing, blushing. you know, where it, your emotional... Maybe I should have said that, have <laughs> your podcast. I'll get my mind out of the gutter please. <laughs> but I think, I think one of the interesting things is, is so many people have, you know, experiences like you mentioned or blushing, and they forget that that's a really brilliant example of the mind-body connection. That, it, that is exactly what's going on, that some you, often internal stimulus, you know, a thought, uh, a romantic dream or an embarrassment, creating a physiological response. And, and most people, it'd be difficult to go through your life without having one of those kind of experiences that's somewhere different. along the line. So um, I also like what you were talking about, uh, about the two-wayness of it, you know, mm-hmm. the the body and the mind, not not just the mind affecting the body but it it also being a two-way street uh, which is very important and um, this old uh, one of the questions of course is you know we talk about the body the mind-body connection are they even distinct because if they if they're connected that would suggest that one is different from the other what's Mm -hmm. your take on that
1: I think we have the experience of the everyday experience of mind and body being distinct but I don't think you can really disentangle them in the sense that one is always, each are always affecting each other. So it's like time and space. You know, time and space really, if, if you speed up, if you go much faster, then time and space contract. So time and space is malleable. And so for all intents and purposes, they're really the same thing. But our everyday experience, is of them being two separate entities. Like we experience the elapsing, elapsing of time, we experience the movement from one place to another. Similarly, we experience the, the mind is something that to, ev- to us in our everyday experience feels distinct. But if you if you pick down into the depths of it, you'll find that maybe they're just two versions of the same thing. And it's just two different expressions, two different ways to look at the same thing. But ultimately, I think they're much more entangled than our everyday experience would have us believe. Whether mm. they are the same thing or not, I'm not entirely sure, but they are certainly very closely entangled, if you want to use that kind of language. Yeah,
0: yeah I think entangles is quite an interesting way of saying it. Uh, the other thing that I think is quite useful to, as a starting point is what? how would you summarize some of the core ways in which these two things interact? What are the physiological mes- mechanisms going on that are really clear around the mind-body connection for you?
1: Yeah, well, well there's, there's a few. For example, the placebo effect. First, I mean, I mean, there has been so much research pinning down how that works. Mm-hmm. For example, when a person believes, let's say for pain, for example, which is a very well-known uh, example, and very, very similar research with Parkinson's as well, is when a person believes they're receiving a painkiller, but it's really a sugar tablet, it's a placebo, their brain will produce its own natural painkillers. So the brain has natural versions of morphine called endogenous opiates. They're endogenous to your body, they're your own. And so the brain produces its own natural version to deliver the result that you're expecting. Similarly with Parkinson's disease, which has also been well studied in the the same context, that when a person is receiving a placebo, but believes, for example, apomorphine, which is an actual real Parkinson's drug, people receiving the apomorphine, the brain produces dopamine, but people who believe they're receiving apomorphine, yet it's a saltwater injection, the brain also produces dopamine. So in other words, it's producing what it needs to, the brain produces what it needs to produce. To deliver the result that you believe is supposed to happen, or that you're expecting to happen, so that's one aspect that's been tied down. Another aspect of the mind-body connection that's well understood is stress, and people tend not to think of this as the mind-body connection. But when you feel stressed, and it's not the you know it's not the situation itself, it's how you feel about the situation. That feeling of stress generates stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol which bring about physiological effects on the arteries the immune system etc but the i mean the opposite of that is when you feel the the feelings associated with kindness and compassion which we call elevation now that generates i call them kindness hormones uh, oxytocin for example which acts not only on the brain and on the gut but it also acts on the arteries and causes a, a blood pressure lowering effect and all another aspect that's been well understood is when you visualize something for example if you visualize uh, moving a muscle like lifting weights for example or you know hitting a golf bo- a golf shot or t- hitting a tennis racket uh, or even moving your body in any particular way that re- if you repeatedly do the visualization it causes physical structural changes to brain circuitry which has a corresponding physical effect in the body. And, and so the, the brain begins to shape itself through neuroplasticity, but at the same time, the body begins to change in the strength of the muscles, even in the elasticity of the muscles, or the way in which the muscles are able to move compared to previously. So these are different ways that I think the mind-body connection is very, very well understood. Uh, you know, really well understood in science and there's really clear mechanisms for how it actually happens
0: Brilliant, I mean those, those studies are fascinating stuff, the, the placebo study I've seen a recent version of that which I think again was Bendetti but I'm not sure who. they found that the response was even more heightened if people had already been given the true drug so they've had an actual experience of physiological change from the drug then you substitute it for the placebo you'll get a much bigger response because it's like they bought in, or maybe the neurology is already kind of yeah. ready to be triggered, and that's that's yeah, very it's, interesting.
1: It's called placebo-controlled dose reduction, and what they do is you give the drug on the first day, and you measure. They me- Benedetti it was Benedetti's group, and they measured the physiological response. You know, it was Parkinson's disease, and they measured the the effect, the the lowering of tremors, muscle tremors, the reduction in muscle stiffness, and they also measured activation of neurons in the brain. And so on day one, after an injection of apomorphine, the anti-Parkinson's drug, that's what they they could measure and quantify this physiological response. But on day two, the person's had an an experience of, when I get this injection, the following things happen, i.e. reduction in tremors, change in muscle stiffness, and obviously changes in, in activation in the brain. So because of the weight of that experience means that on the second day, they could get the same quantity of physiological response with only 75% of the drug, but replacing the other 25% with placebo. So it was 75 drug, 25 placebo. On the next day, now they've had two days of experience of when I get this injection, the following things happen, i.e. change in tremors, change in muscle stiffness, activation of neurons in the brain. They found, Benedetti's team found they could get the same degree of physiological response with only 50% drug, 50% placebo. By day, I think it was four or five, they could get the full physiological clinical response, changing in muscle tremors, uh, uh, muscle stiffness, and activation of neurons in the brain, with no drug at all, but just with 100% of placebo. So they called it placebo controlled dose reduction, or PCDR, eliminating the drug through conditioning and replacing it with placebo but what's happening is changes in the brain but also changes in the, the degree of a person's belief and expectation which is to do with their their past experience which strengthens a belief which gives the the placebo effect a much which makes the placebo effect significantly stronger your own experience because that increases your belief
0: yeah and i think particularly with those placebo studies and we've got one of the experts coming on uh, later onto the podcast um, mm really fascinating because it's a it's such a clear demonstration of how expectancy uh changes actual phys- physiological changes Absolutely. you know you're getting Absolutely. a change in dopamine which mm. is impossible to generate incredible but it being possible to generate. So that with those who don't know about Parkinson's, so with Parkinson's you have your, your normal movement as I move my hand, it's nice and steady, uh, but uh, it would be quite clunky if we didn't have dopamine just helping us to smooth out those pathways and that's why you get the tremors. And the problem with Parkinson's is there isn't enough dopamine to go around so you get this tremor and this clunky movement. It's very difficult to get the, par- the dopamine into the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. There are ways to do it but they they haven't got enough to go around and then when they take a placebo thinking it will produce dopamine they generate the dopamine actually in their brain so there's a there's a physiological shift that's occurring and this kind of opens up the second big question about placebos and the mind-body connection which is how do we harness that how do we switch that on and that's what some of these studies are about how can we uh, if it is possible to do that, to generate your own dopamine by being kind of tricked or fooled, then it is possible to do it. So how do we mm-hmm. do it? And that's something I know you and I have been working on for a yeah. long time. Lots of really interesting things you said, Talked about oxytocin as well, the, the, the love hormone, the bonding hormone, the kind hormone. And there's, it might be worth talking about this now, there's a few things you could do to trigger oxytocin production. Uh, Dave's gonna tell you a couple. And I'll tell you a couple. a couple of things to trigger oxytocin production. No, it's probably going Uh, to be rude because. uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, one way is to think warm and affectionate thoughts about people. You know, I mean, for example, there was in fact there was a study just to, to give you about people a bit of background. One of the early areas of research into this was recognizing that when women who were lactating would just think about their newborn infant the thought itself and the feelings that came with that generated oxytocin which caused the the production of of breast milk. And now we understand that, you know, it's the feelings of love and affection and emotional warmth and kindness, anything that that we get that generates that feeling. It's the feeling itself, just like I said earlier, it's the feelings of stress that generate stress hormones. And this is why I call oxytocin the kindness hormone. to, To draw that comparison because the effects of kindness are physiologically, in many ways, physiologically opposite to stress. You know, what stress does, kindness, through the, how it makes you feel, does pretty much the opposite in a number of different ways that I've kind of charted in some of my, my, my books. And so if you just think nice thoughts about people and that generate a feeling, think of someone that you love, someone you care about, and think about a time that was very well spent, that you felt really close to the person, maybe they, they did you some, did something really kind for you, and you feel such connection with them and gratitude for that, then you will generate oxytocin. You know, another thing is just feeling compassion for someone, as well as generating oxytocin, it also stimulates the vagus nerve, and that brings about an anti-inflammatory effect, and that's been kind of well-studied. Uh, as well. So there's a number of, so it's to do with oxytocin particularly, it's to do with the feeling. So any way that you can access that feeling, for me, it is one of the best ways to generate it.
0: Yeah, brilliant. A couple yeah. of uh, things that you said that I realise I've said, and I haven't explained them fully. So we talk, both talked about the vagus nerve, I talked about another podcast. So the vagus nerves, and for those of you who don't know much about how the body works, the nerves. We've got a big chunk of nervous system in our brain, but it has to connect to the rest of the body through a, a series of nerves. And there are lots of them, but there is a massive one called the vagus, which goes from the brain down through the heart, comes back actually to the to the eyes and, and ears and, and to the throat as well, but carries on down uh, lungs to the gut. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting nerve because it's part of the parasympathetic nervous system. And again, just to clarify some of these terms, The the sympathetic nervous system is the part of us that responds to stress, as David talked about. The parasympathetic does exactly the opposite. It's all about recuperation, nurturing, loving, growing, kindness, that kind of thing. Um, And the gut uh, is well served by this nerve, actually both nerves, the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The vagus nerve, which takes care of the gut, is all about, you know, healing, recovering, nurturing, nutrition, that kind of stuff and when those systems aren't in balance we can get into all sorts of physiological th- problems and again David talked about that how one of the models for how mind-body connection works is you know activating stress response and learning responses like that in terms of oxytocin a um, couple of other things that are useful to do be, David talks about being kind there are great things but a lot of oxytocin is produced in community activities so any social positive social activity um, so things like it's also uh, triggered by dancing, but it's more more triggered by dancing than singing if you do it with other people. And interestingly, it's triggered in communication, even in social media communications. So social, you know, people say oh, social media is bad for you, and it does depend what what your feed is full of. But even connecting with people in that slightly distance way will will increase your oxytocin as well. And of course, sex. That's the other thing. As David was about to say, uh, oxytocin is produced both in sex and pregnancy. And hugging so, as well. And hugging, hugging, of hugging course. But well. the whole hug has to be long, doesn't it? It's not short yeah, yeah. hugs. And better if you look at someone's in the eye at the same time, if you can do both those things. So, yeah, oxytocin, great stuff. So then let's move on to, we talked about, a little bit about research. But I wonder, um, in your studies, and if you read Dave's book, which, which are great, uh, they're really... Um, really approachable, easy to digest descriptions of some of the really key bits of research in the field. Um, So for you, do you have a favourite piece of research that you always kind of go, I really like that research or that's something I always talk about that you haven't already mentioned?
1: Yeah, there's so many studies that I love, but but one I I talk about quite a lot is, it was led by a professor at Harvard called Alvaro Pascal León. And he had a group of volunteers play a sequence of notes on a piano. And he played the five, like five notes, going plonk, 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 up and down a scale for two hours on five consecutive days. And he, he measured activation of the brain. And he found that the region of the brain connected to the finger muscles had literally grown substantially. In fact, it was about 30 to 40-fold increase. But a separate group of people, instead of playing the notes with their fingers, they closed their eyes and played the notes in their mind. And it, you might, you could call it kinesthetic imagery, like you imagine the feelings, the sensations, as if you, as if you really were moving your, your fingers, but you're not. But they had to do it again for the same two hours and five consecutive days. They also had their brain scanned, and amazingly, the brain had been activated and changed to exactly the same degree in both groups. Those who had played the notes with their fingers and those had closed their eyes and played the notes with their mind. And, and in many ways, and a, a number of related studies have now shown us that in many ways, the brain does not make a distinction between whether something, you're doing something, really, or whether you're doing something in your mind. And for, to the, your brain, a lot of it is the same thing, real and imaginary, it's a very fine line. And so that's one of my favorite studies because it, it opens, it introduces a, an entire field, fields of research, really, enti- and opportunities to us of what can we imagine what can we visualize happening
0: yeah it's funny she picked that one because i was thinking about that when you were talking earlier about uh using our brain and neuroplasticity because that's such an interesting study isn't it that they mm. you would imagine people often go, just thinking about something doesn't cause a different but it really really does and of course there's other studies by davidson where he studied prolonged uh, people who are very experienced meditators and they found that there was really significant changes in their particular parts of the brain the insula, if you're interested Mm. uh, of their brain just by meditating and and i also talked about another study which is one of my favorite ones where somebody took uh, people through had probiotic yogurts and what they found by having eaten these yogurts over quite a short period of time that there was again changes in the brain because of this upward travel of information from the vagus up to the brain Um, I don't know if this is a separate question or the same question, but is there any particular research that you find incredibly impressive, you think, well that is like incontrovertible, that's the bit of information you want to give someone if you want to say, this is how it works, or would it be the same
1: study? Uh, I often cite that study, but I'd maybe cite two actually, an extension of that is a number of studies have been done on people who have had a stroke. And they're all, everyone gets in the study, say, physiotherapy for the same amount of time, same duration of time. But half of the patients, in addition to doing physiotherapy, they do visualisation. They call it motor imagery. So they might imagine uh, reaching for a glass of water, taking a drink, putting it back down. Then they imagine reaching for a glass of water, taking a drink, putting it back down. They imagine reaching for the water. They imagine picking up a pen, writing a sentence, full stop, putting the pen down, returning the hand to the side. Then they imagine picking up the pen again, writing a sentence, full stop, putting the pen down, using the three rules of mental practice. Repetition, repetition, repetition. <laughs> and in all of these studies, what they find is the group who do visualization, as well as physiotherapy, recover substantially more and faster than those who do physiotherapy alone. And now that's really impressive research and fairly incontrovertible. But a recent piece of research just blew me away. And it, it, was on, it was looking at, it, it actually involves the vagus nerve pathway, but they didn't particularly talk about that in, in the study. But they were, scientists were looking at, at uh, people doing the loving kindness meditation, you know, may you be filled with loving kindness, be well, peaceful, and at ease, happy, free of suffering, basically cultivating a feeling of kindness and compassion, uh, versus uh, mindfulness versus no meditation and they measured the rate of loss of telomeres which for people that don't know telomeres it's like the plastic end caps on a shoelace if the end caps grind down then you can't thread your shoelaces through the little hole little loop so with the dna has end caps as well they're called telomeres if they grind down which is which is related to our uh, stressful life experiences etc then eventually the the dna can't keep it can't it's like a shoelace you can't thread it anymore it doesn't work anymore so to speak, and they found during a six week course of loving kindness meditation versus mindfulness versus no meditation, that in the no meditation group, they got about what you would expect from six weeks of loss of telomere length. The mindfulness group, it was close to that, although there was definitely a slowing down, but in the loving kindness meditation group, in that six weeks, there was no loss of telomere at all. I mean, none at all. So, So during that six week period, it seemed to be that the experience of kindness and compassion had offset the the typical loss of telomere length that you would get during that six-week period. You know, and I would suspect that it involves the vagus nerve pathway. There's probably more going on with epigenetics. But but certainly that's what the study found. And I thought that was amazing. Very recent actually, just done this year. And I thought that's phenomenal research, because that's looking at the aging process in the D- in the DNA itself and the mm. cells themselves
0: yeah really mm. really fascinating stuff and, and going back a couple of studies uh, you mentioned about uh, mental imagery or motor imagery or kinesthetic imageries and stuff like that it also leads naturally onto the dark side of the mind-body connection which is the placebo effect so mm. the placebo effect is how uh, nothing can have an effect, then those super effects is how giving nothing, giving no pills, uh, can have a negative effect, and it it, kind of makes sense that if by thinking thoughts about, you know, if I repeat lifting the glass in the stroke patient and putting it down and repeat that, and it affects my ability to function, what if I'm repeating or hearing a repetition of, you will never recover? this is going to be there forever what could be the effects of that and I think that's a whole another field, but really interesting yeah. um, area of, of, of work as what is the, the the consequence of throwaway conversations particularly in medical consults where people are given messages that probably don't have that intention at all or they come away with an understanding of a message uh, that's that they the replay in their head. And of course every time you replay one of those messages, it's exactly mm. this kind of mental imagery kind of stuff yeah. of imaging. What do you think about this, the placebo and conversations that could be hard?
1: Yeah. Do you know what, Phil? I, I, I oftentimes I have sidestepped the issue intentionally because I don't want people to get scared I, I, because I'm, I'm often asked this type of question in talks and workshops, and I usually I try to steer people towards uh, just using the positives. And one of the answers that I, I could, you know, there's a lot I could go into a lot more detail, but one of the answers I use I often give is the research showing how to really positively, powerfully affect the body is repetition of something that you're intending and visualising. But when we have negative thoughts, we're not really putting the same effort into it. You know, for example, visualizing the piano study, visualizing, you know, playing the notes on your fingers, also people visualise studies showing people visualizing the immune system destroying cancer cells, for example, can enhance the effectiveness of the immune system. But we're repetitively visualizing the same thing, putting a lot of mental effort into it over a considerable period of time. I don't think we tend to put the same effort into intentionally visualizing negative thoughts they kind of come fleetingly so so what i tend to give as an answer to people just partly because i don't want people to get scared is say that when we're actually harnessing visualization we're we're putting more mental effort into the positives intending them far more than we are with the odd negative comment but what sometimes gets in people's heads is the throwaway comment that this will never work or the throwaway, especially if it's someone who you respect, like a doctor, for example, or a consultant who said you, this would never work for you, this is incurable, for example. And those little thoughts get in people's heads. And they sometimes negate some of the good work that a person's doing only because the person loses belief in what they're doing and they don't then put the same effort into what they're doing. So I think we need to be you know, careful with any throwaway negative comments. And so for that reason, I tend to often sidestep the issue and put more emphasis on the positives. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, there's uh, one of the later guests is is a bioethicist or a medical, and one of the questions I'll be asking them is about things like informed consent, you know, which is when you have a procedure, they say, I have to let you know before we do this, your legs may fall off. You know, and yeah. how, how important those kind of conversations are, yeah, and how yeah. we can how we can manage them in the in the lightning process, which you of course know about. Uh, we do look a lot at the conversations people are telling them because I think expert opinions are massively important, yeah. but probably the most important opinion is the one we're carrying around in our heads, all that we keep on dipping into. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think if people have a strong symptom like pain. Uh, they probably will be thinking about it quite a lot and the neuroplastic function and for those of you who don't know about neuroplasticity It basically means the more you use a bit of bit of nerve nerve wiring the stronger it gets the more powerful it gets uh, So there are there's some interesting studies. I don't know if you've seen them of uh, Thomas Weiss who's done fMRI studies of people uh, And they're giving a deck of cards and they're shuffled and some of them are like grocery items and some are, in other words pain or intense or burning Mm-hmm. And every time they pick up a grocery card, there's not much activity in the brain, but whenever they pick up the, a card that says pain and read it, you see this kind of activation of certain areas that are linked to processing of pain. Wow. So um, it's something that I think when people have got into a, a developed pathway, it's something that we do need to be careful of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there's also some researchers we've got coming on who have specifically looked into the placebo the, the effects within studies. So it'd be interesting to have a chat with them. But I, yeah. I think your answer is very interesting. I think, I think I think the whole thing about placebo, placebo and uh, mind-body connection is it's about empowering us. It's like if we can understand that these things have an effect, then we can do something about it. We're no longer yeah. you know, the victim of these dropped conversations we can kind of go okay i choose not to buy into that conversation
1: i I often direct people to you know podcasts or books or talks you know anything that will increase their their belief in the mind-body connection you know and and i think it's important for people who maybe need a wee bit more belief is to you know listen to your podcast for example you know watch youtube videos read books on this stuff watch other other kind of stuff because the more information you get the deeper your own belief becomes Uh, and then it it can overrule some of the negative opinions that we might take on that and some opinions might come because someone didn't fully you know wasn't aware of some positive research for example a throwaway comment might be simply due to the fact that the person who said that is not aware of the mind-body connection or, or the degree of evidence of it, you know, and it's not not always intentional, but so I often often direct people to positive stuff to reinforce, and this is why when I do talks and workshops, I I share a lot of research studies in in very simple terms, but I share a lot of them for the sole purpose of giving people faith in themselves, that if you use these techniques, then this is what you're capable of doing, and it's really just to give them belief in themselves, faith in themselves, so to speak.
0: One of the things that I often hear uh, patients say is, my doctor told me nothing could be done for me. And really getting clear that there's a distinction between nothing can be done and I have run out of effective tools that I can do anything for you with. Yeah. And I think that's that's an interesting conversation to have because there can be, as you say, people know what they know. And there's a whole chunk of stuff they, they don't know. It's not, not their speciality. Yeah. They, they, they don't have to know that, that stuff. And just mm-hmm. recognizing there are other tools that may or may not be useful, but to explore them from a starting point of, well, let's see. Which brings me on to the next conversation, which is about your, your experience of the mind-body connection. So ha, ha, is it always been the case that this has been part of your life or did something happen? Tell me your story.
1: Oh well, I, I, well, actually, Phil, when I was, when I was a child, my mum had postnatal depression or postpartum, as they say in, in some other countries. She should postnatal depression, not after I was born, but after my youngest sister was born. This was in the mid-1970s. And my mum developed postnatal depression. It wasn't fully understood at the time, not as well as it's understood now. And, and one piece of advice my mum got from a psychiatrist was to give yourself a shake. Now, asking a woman with postnatal depression to give yourself a shake is like asking someone with a broken hip to run it off, you know? And it also, it gave my mum the impression that she was weak, and my mum took that on board as if that every woman woman feels this way, but I'm just a weak person that I'm just not able to manage. And my mum felt, you know, it, it led into a lot more, a lot worse than it actually needed to be. and. I wanted to help my mum. And this went on for a year. My mum was admitted to hospital a couple of times, just literally being ill. And uh, I remember I was about 11 years old. I'd just started high school, secondary school. And I was in the library, and a book fell off the shelf. And And this is going to sound really corny to a lot of people. Now, I don't know if the book fell off or I bumped it or something, but the book fell down, and it was called The Magic Power of Your Mind by a gentleman called Walter Germain. I had a strong instinct that that could help my mum. So I picked it up, I put it in my bag, and I, I left. I didn't know you are supposed to join the library. You know, there's only 11. You know, I'd borrow the book, we still have it, you know. Uh, but, you know, it didn't cure my mum's depression in a day, but what it gave her was, was tools and strategies that were able to help her navigate a course through some of the most difficult days. So some of the really difficult times, I would hear my mum go, "I can do it. Mind over matter. It's the thought that counts." And she would punch her, her, she'd punch her arm like, "I can do it. It's the thought that counts. Mind over matter. I can do it." And it was all these what we call now positive affirmations. And my mum would do this, and it really helped her sometimes, and it gave my mum a lot of belief in that there's something I can do and, and the power of the mind. My mum would read the book and read the book and read it again and she she listened to meditation tapes online. You know, not online for in a, an old cassette recorder. She got old cassettes and listened to meditation tapes. So my mum and I when I was a teenager growing up would often talk about the mind body connection and the power we called it the power of the mind. We didn't know it was called the mind body connection. But we were, I was fascinated by it. And my mum's demonstration it led to some real spiritual conversations about experiences my mum had had and, uh, and stuff. And so when I ended up working in the pharmaceutical industry, during my PhD, on the side, I was reading a lot of books about the power of the mind and, you know, whatever books were available. Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, Jane Roberts, The Nature of Personal Reality, these types of things. So when I ended up working in a big, one of the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies, when I saw the first clinical data for like an antihypertensive drug and realizing how many people had improved on the placebo, all my colleagues were fascinated and excited by how well the drug was working. All I could see was how many people had improved on a placebo because they thought they were getting a drug because that was just, reinforcing, that was the first clinical data I'd ever seen for what my mom and I had talked about in all the books that I'd been reading that said, look at this. These people are improving on a placebo because they think they're getting the drug, or they believe they're getting the drug, and that for me was a paradigm shift. You know, taking stuff that I had talked about with my mom and read about in books, and, and here I was looking at data myself going whoa. And so I think if it hadn't been for my experience with my mum and the book falling off the shelf and all the conversations the hours and hours and hours of conversation my mum and I would have that prompted me to read all these books during my time doing my PhD. I didn't read novels in the evening. I read books about the mind because that was my interest because that's what my mum and I talked about. If it wasn't for that, I think my life would have taken a different path, and I don't think I would have found the placebo effect quite so interesting. Certainly not interesting enough that I would resign from a very well-paid job after four years and, and with a dream to write books and educate people on the mind, on how the mind and emotions can impact our health. I don't think <laughs> – if you wanted me to tell you a story, that's my story. I don't think my life would have gone – the way it did. Had I not, had that not happened with my mum, you know, mum and I having these conversations.
0: Well, I think you know, for many researchers, the the, the placebo response in your control group, the bit the, the guys who aren't getting any of the intervention, is a bit annoying, you know, because statistically you've got to then factor that out of both groups, and and so many researchers, you know, statistically find the placebo effect difficult but uh, as we said earlier what's fascinating about it is what is going on in those people and how can we harness that because that is extraordinary that people just you know they've got a problem they've had it for ages so much so you know they've they sought medical help and even though they're not getting any physical medicine they're changing as a result of this you know sugar pill or whatever inter- pretend intervention they're having that's what's really really fascinating so um I talked earlier about uh, people who are just not getting their heads around uh, the mind-body connection or think it's nonsense. Um, what's your understanding of people with that particular map of the world? How, how, how do you kind of understand how they see the world when there is loads of evidence that supports this? Do you have a position
1: on that or thoughts? You know, generally speaking, Phil, I, I think it's just they don't have... They're not aware of the the research, you know. You know, I I've met a number of people, even a lot of professional people, and it, it's not that they disagree with it. It's just they're not aware of the research, or it doesn't. The research doesn't sound believable. It doesn't sound possible, you especially when I talk about you know all the studies that I do, the fascinating about changing brain circuits and placebo effect. Once once I start talking about actual peer reviewed studies people's mindset begins to shift, even people who were previously skeptical. You know, I, so I really think most of the time, it's just because they're not aware of the research. So that, you know, that's that's my experience mm. of it. I, I think some people, even when they're aware of the research, have a problem with some of the, the more, you know, the stuff that sounds even more unbelievable. And again, it's not because it is not factually true, it's because, They've learned a little bit, but that just sounds too much. But and so it's, it's all a degree of education about what you're aware of, you know. And, and I think I might be the same with other. Feel if something, if I had something for the first time, and I thought, oh no, that surely couldn't be right. I've learned through my life not to dismiss stuff just because I'm unfamiliar with it, because you know that, that that's that's not the right, that's not good science, really. And and so I, I think it's really just a lack of knowledge. Of the stuff, and I've came across, as I say, a number of people, a number of professional people that, as soon as they become aware of the research, it's like, oh, that's, if they're open minded enough, it's like, wow, that's really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, I, for me, it is. I, I, it's difficult to imagine how you wouldn't be interested in that because it opens up so many interesting yes. possibilities and conversations. But I also think it's fair to say, as as you know, thousands of research papers are produced every week you know you're not going to be able to read them all and you're likely yeah. to go down you know your own your own Absolutely. i was having a debate Absolutely. recently with somebody who was i think he was a physicist and you can kind of get you know their version of the world which is if you have a steel bar and you put a certain amount of pressure or tension or stress through it it doesn't matter how happy or unhappy the bar is it will snap at the same point you know those things don't make that much difference to although other people might argue about that, let's just stay on this this conversation. Um, but humans are not the same. So a friend of mine had this nice analogy. He said, you know, if you take a football and you kick that football with a certain velocity in a certain direction, you can predict whether it will go in the net or not. But he said, if you take instead of a football, you replace it with a, a silverbacked gorilla and you kick that towards the, the football net, you'll get a very different response because there are now other forces involved in this conversation. And I think that's the thing, that trying to treat humans like test tubes is one yeah. of the real challenges of good science because with science we do want to try and understand, is what w- what we have done, the intervention made the difference? How can we remove as many of the other colluding or collaborating or colliding factors? So we're just looking at the, the actual factor. Uh, but we we often forget that even if we're giving this pill to someone that human is such a complex thing and obviously yeah. with studies one of the things we do have enough humans that we can try and mm. you know make it you know, affect a big enough population, but still, humans are not test tubes. That's, yeah. that's the thing we haven't it, quite found out. It's yet.
1: funny you're using that example because, as a former chemist, I'm a former organic chemist. My PhD was organic chemistry, and funny enough, I'm actually a good way into a, a university, a part-time university degree in mathematics and physics. So I'm very familiar with the calculations around projectiles and footballs <laughs> and stuff. Uh, but, uh, but as a chemist you can mix A plus B will always give you C in a test tube. So chemical A plus chemical B, mix them together for a particular amount of time at a particular temperature. 100 times out of 100, A A plus B will give you C and it'll take exactly the same duration of time. But once you put human consciousness in the test tube, now the test tube's a human body, A plus B does not always equal C. And even if it does, it doesn't always take the same length of time. It might be quicker or it might take longer. Human consciousness, your beliefs, what you think and how you feel, what's going on in your psyche. These things change the context and the, they change the environment in the test tube. So you can't just talk about A plus B equals C because the environment is completely different and that environment is affected by what's going on up here. Yeah. There's,
0: there's some interesting stuff at the moment coming out about um, threat and challenge. So one of the questions people often ask me is like, you know, because we talk about the stress response a lot in terms of health. They say, so if I go to an a amusement park and I ride around on roller coasters all day, will I get ill? Because I'm, you know, be, my body is under stress. <gasps> you know, my heart's racing. And it's like, oh, that's a good question. And the answer wasn't clear for a long time because it, you don't get ill, but why don't you get ill from that? Uh, even if you did it every day, you wouldn't get ill. If if you like amusement parks, and, and the the most recent model which has some interesting support in research, is that an event occurs, and we will either define so a surprising event, we will either define it as a challenge, like some kind of opportunity or a threat, and that will depend on whether challenge challenge opportunity is something we feel we have the capacity or the skill set to manage or overcome. Whereas the threat response is where we think we just haven't got what's required to deal with this. Wow. And what's interesting physiologically is that both of them will produce adrenaline. But in the, the challenge or opportunity response, our blood pressure will stay relatively stable. And uh, our heart rate will increase, should increase pressure, but our uh, arteries will uh, and capillaries will dilate a bit oh. to allow the blood flow to flow normally and our pressure will stay about the same but in the threat response the heart rate increases but actually what happens is the blood vessels contract and so you get a higher blood pressure so there's, wow. a, there's a physiological difference from wow. two people in the same event standing next to each wow. other depending on how they it. interpret it yeah which wow. is kind of interesting yeah yeah um so yeah threatened threatened challenge or or, or opportunity mm-hmm. challenge um and i guess um that leads us into the future of the mind-body connection. So what, what research would you love to see?
1: Uh, for me, I would love to see far more research on using visualization techniques and charting particularly what happens in the body. I mean, there's been some really exciting research on women with, uh, using women, uh, employing women who had breast cancer, uh, half of whom, all of whom, sorry, were, were getting treatment as usual, which was chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and or surgery. But half of them, in addition to the treatment as usual, were asked to visualize their immune system destroying the cancer cells. So many of them would visualize the immune cells like little piranha fish swimming through the blood vessels, chomping down, and destroying cancer cells, so they would see the cancer cells getting smaller and smaller until they disappear. And what these studies demonstrate is a massive change in the actual immune system, and what they found is the immune system in these women visualizing was far more active, even after four cycles of chemotherapy, than in the women who weren't using visualization. The ones who had the most accurate mental representations not who visualized clearer, but who were just clearer about their story, about that here's, here's how I represent an immune cell, whether it's like a real macrophage or whether it's a piranha fish, and now it's approaching the cancer cell and destroying it. It doesn't have to see in high definition, but you're just clear about what the process is that you're imagining. The women who had the, the clearest mental representations fared better. The higher clinical response to the treatment as well. So I would love to see much more research looking at different visualization techniques applied to even serious conditions, not instead of medicine, but in addition to medicine. Just look at what they did with the, the, the cancer study, a bioethicist, for example, would probably find that interesting. It's not visualization instead of, of treatment, it's treatment plus visualization compared with treatment as usual kind of thing, Uh, and so I would love to see visualization techniques being applied to lots of different conditions, and figuring out, from research, the best way to visualize different conditions. And what types of visualizations might be more effective? Like, should we always visualize the immune system, or should, could we approach the same disease by visualizing something entirely differently, but visualizing a different mechanism, for example? You know, if I was an academic, I would be studying the, the different aspects and pinning down the me- different mechanisms. And, and, you know, I've collected a lot of data myself, but anecdotally, I'm, I suppose, from just chatting with Hundreds, thousands perhaps of people over you know 15 years of giving talks and workshops and I you know I, I see patterns myself but if I was an academic I would study it you know in in a lot more detail looking at the actual substances and the mechanisms involved, involves just so that we can figure out the best way to approach different conditions and exactly what happens in the body and studying the degree of effect that you get from visualization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love to see a whole integrated model, you know, the future for me of medicine is integrative, you know, bringing in diet and lifestyle, managing stress, visualization, sleep, as well as medicine, you know, allopathic and alternative medicine, bringing in healing as well as research in Reiki, for example, randomized controlled trials showing that it reduces pain, for example. So there's a lot of fantastic evidence, and I'd love to see it all coming together to a more holistic model. Really?
0: That, that's interesting because that's, that's predicted that that question I was going to ask you which is you know what is the future of healthcare is there a you know is is there a different different place to go and I think there is I think you know we know with the NHS that in the UK certainly it's it, there isn't a bottomless bucket of money to throw at it and we yeah. need to think well what can we do that is cheap free easy and I think there's been some interesting conspiracy theory conversations about research hasn't been done into things like fasting very much or placebos because nobody makes any money from it. But I think there are bigger conversations, which is how do we get the best health care for the most people with the least amount of cost because mm. of the aging population and all the rest of it, we need to we need to rethink this. so that's very interesting. And then I think finally, unless you, are there are any other major things you'd like to add to this conversation, you don't like think we've covered, is to move towards a, a tip or a, a skill or a guided visualisation you would like to talk people through uh, to finish the interview.
1: Uh, you know, in, in, in terms of a tip, if I was to give a tip, one I think one of the best things that you can do for your health in terms of using the mind body connection is to be aware of your of your thinking and try to direct more of your thoughts kindly towards people you know so that as often as you can throughout the day you can generate a warm sense of friendliness kindness compassion understanding patience a warmth towards people and that's not that difficult to do if we just notice what we're thinking about just at random times during the day you know and I, I found i think that's one of the healthiest things a person can do uh, in a number of different ways obviously for the oxytocin but oh, but for a number of different reasons for how the mind affects the body i personally feel that's one of the healthiest things we can do is just direct more of our thinking towards thinking nice things about people just being patient with people being being willing to understand reaching out and connecting with people even if it's just in your mind, physically great, but even if it's just and thinking appreciative of someone instead of judgmentally about someone, being patient in your mind with someone instead of being condemning or, or critical. Being willing to be willing to understand rather than to, to always judge. And I think that's a little shift that we can all make in varying degrees. And with a little bit of work, I think it's one of the best things a person can do for the mind. And for the way that their mind then impacts their body.
0: And also, of course, if you do that, not only will it affect your mind and your body, but by being nicer to other people, it will also influence them. At the absolutely,
1: same time. absolutely, yeah.
0: Brilliant. Mm. Well, thank you very much, David, for spending your time with us uh, talking about this stuff. Really interesting. It's been a could, pleasure. Have for, to, could have talked for hours, I think, but we just about managed to keep it to about 52 minutes. Um, very good. So uh, anything else you'd like to add? anything you want to say or no, th- where, where can we, people get in touch with you
1: we've pretty much covered a lot of bases there Phil well, online on and my website is drdavidhamilton.com and you can access all my social media channels from there as well I'm on Facebook Instagram Twitter I'm quite active on, on social media as well so so you can interact with me in a lot of ways really
0: thanks David again good to see you and my see pleasure soon, yeah.
1: Phil see you soon it's been great
0: the Mind Body Connection podcast That's
1: the body mm
0: i hope you enjoyed this episode please do subscribe to us on itunes like it review it and share it the more people know about this the better and don't forget to join our podcast mailing list by going to philparker.org forward slash yes and you'll get extra stuff bonus material and program notes see you there